Any of you uh, walked into a buffet restaurant and walked out with regret? Okay, I am not alone. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, you, you walk in and there's the buffet table and there's just so much that looks good that you just keep piling it onto your plate and you just keep shoveling it into your mouth until like you're removed on a stretcher. Uh, like it, it, it's bad. Well, that's how I feel today. Well, not today. This is how I felt this week. Because a year ago, last November, I built out my preaching calendar for this entire His Story series. And on this particular Sunday, I said that I was going to talk about the New Testament epistles. A year ago, that sounded like a great idea. But when I sat down to begin studying, I realized this is foolishness. And I have no one to blame but myself. Because it's like a preaching buffet. You walk up and you just see all of these New Testament letters. And you just want to keep piling on passage after passage after passage. And my fear is that if I do that today, you're going to be the ones walking out with regret. So what we're going to do is we're going to go into one book of the Bible at one section. And we're going to see why one author wrote his letter to his readers. Because I believe that as we look at his reasoning for writing his letter, it's going to actually explain why all of the epistles were written. So if you brought a Bible, open it up to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Um, as you're turning to 1 John 2, uh, let me just explain. An epistle is the, just another word for letter. All right, it, The New Testament is comprised of the first four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then one book of history, the book of Acts, which we looked at last week. Then you come to these letters, the epistles. The way they are arranged is simply by author and then size. So the Apostle Paul wrote the most number of letters that we have recorded in the scriptures. And so therefore his letters get put first and they just start with the largest and they just work their way down to the smallest. First, you have a section of letters written to the churches. Then there's four letters written to individuals. Three of those letters are written to pastors. And so they're known as the pastoral epistles. And if you want to sound really fancy, you just talk about Paul's letters as being the Pauline epistles. And you'll sound like you've graduated from seminary. After the Pauline epistles comes the general epistles. This is other epistles written by other authors. Then they too go down by size. So you start with Hebrews, then down to James, and then 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 3 Peter, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and Jude. If you were to look at some of the size, you'd see that Jude is larger than like 2 and 3 John. But 1 John is actually larger than Jude. So that's why you get 1 John, and then they just lump his letters together. And then you conclude with Jude before you get to the apocalyptic nature of Revelation. So this is the epistles, all right? We're going to go into 1 John chapter 2 because in his letter, he says some reasons of why he's writing to his audience. And as I said, I think that his reasons for writing help explain why all of the epistles were written. And what we're going to discover is that, as we've been seeing through this entire history series, that the, that the epistles do what the rest of the Bible do. They point to Jesus. All right, so I've asked Ed to come and read to you First uh, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. So if you will read silently along as he reads aloud. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an, advantage, an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 
But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By, the, by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing this to you. I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him. There is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. All right. Thank you. All right. So in that section that Ed just read, I see four things that John is kind of unintentionally pointing out for why he's writing his letter. Four things. The first one is that the epistles protect. He's aiming to protect his readers. Look there at that first part of verse 1. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, he's not really writing to little children, right? This is not a bunch of preschoolers who are getting this. He's writing to a church. But he has such affection for them that he uses this term of endearment. And he calls them my little children. He feels like a father. And like a good parent, he wants to protect his children. Right? Good, good parents do not let their children go play in the middle of the interstate. No matter how much the child protests. You know, a, a good father does not let their child touch the little white red uh, coils inside the toaster. Right? No matter how much the child wants to and experiment and explore, you don't do that. You seek to protect. And that's what John is doing. He is wanting to protect his readers. But what is it he wants to protect them from? Sin. He says, I write this so that you will not sin. See, John knows that sin is fun. That, that sin is pleasurable. Because if sin was not fun none of us would really be all that tempted to give in to it. John hung out with Jesus for three years, saw Jesus do amazing miracles, saw him die on the cross, rise again from the dead for the forgiveness of sin, and yet John himself knows what it means to be tempted by sin. He knows that it entices, it tempts, but yet it never gives what it promises. Sin always ruins there's a story back in 2 Samuel chapter 13 that illustrates this powerfully. Uh, one of King David's sons is a guy by the name of Amnon. Amnon developed a crush on his half-sister. I know, that sounds really gross to us, but we're just going to go with it. Tamar was beautiful. And he began to become convinced by sin that the only thing that was going to actually please him, the only thing that would be, make him happy, the only thing that would be pleasurable was to have Tamar. 
One day, Amnon opens up to one of his friends, and his friend comes up with this crazy plan. Amnon is so desperate, he decides to try it, and it works. It gets him alone with Tamar. He grabs a hold of her, but rather than her fall into his arms, wanting him as well, she pulls back. She doesn't feel the same way. And yet Amnon is so convinced that the only thing that's going to please him, that will satisfy him, is to have Tamar. So he rapes her. Notice what happens immediately after. 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 15. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and go. Sin always ruins. It never gives what it promises. It promised Amnon happiness, and instead it made him angry. He thought that she would be everything that he needed. And then he takes her virginity from her. And now he can't even stand to see her. Sin can instantly destroy. It can also destroy slowly, just decaying you from the inside out. For Amnon, he just destroyed his sister's life. It also ended up costing him his own life. Because one of Tamar's full brothers found out and later kills Amnon for his sin. He thought this was what was going to make him happy. And instead, it brought him death. That's what sin brings. It brings death. And if John, who could hang out with Jesus for three years, see him die on a cross for the forgiveness of sin, rise again from the dead, and still be tempted by sin, he knows how dangerous sin is. And that's why, like a father, he writes. He writes to protect, because he doesn't want to see them fall back into the ways of sin. Sometimes we, we look at the, the salvation story, the gospel. We're like, oh, I, I'm forgiven. So therefore, we just think we can go and do whatever we want. In fact, I remember years ago, we had an exchange student who was living in my hometown. This was my senior year of high school. And he admitted and confessed that they would go to these houses, lock all the doors, and they would party like all weekend long. And then they would release them to go to the five o'clock mass on Sunday, where then they could go and confess all of their sin. They, they were just like, oh yeah, it's no big deal what we do, because we'll just go and confess it. They like presumed upon God. And yet, they were just slowly destroying themselves. Sin says, come. And then it's going to destroy you. It's going to ruin you. That's why John is writing. He's trying to protect. If, if you go into the other uh, epistles, you'll see much of the same thing. You sense there's this love that the writer has, sometimes even frustration, because they're giving in to sin. And he wants to protect them from it. So that's the first thing we see the epistles do. That they help to protect. The second thing is that the epistles establish doctrine. The epistles establish and affirm doctrine. Look there at, uh, back in 1 John. Look at the second half of verse 1. Right after saying, he's writing these things so that you may not sin. He says, but if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
in nothing but just a couple of sentences, John just drops a whole bunch of truth bombs. I mean, he just, he just dumps it there. This thing is so packed. Uh, look, look at it with me. The first phrase he says there is that we have an advocate, right? That word there is used of the Holy Spirit back in John 14 and 16. But here he's referring, instead of the Holy Spirit, he refers to Jesus. And you've got to think, what does an advocate do? Well, an advocate works on behalf of someone. And it's this idea that Jesus is this advocate for us, that he mediates between us and a holy God. This echoes what Paul in one of his epistles says when he's writing his first pastoral epistle to Timothy. He, he tells Timothy, for there is one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And so Jesus is advocating on your behalf, mediating between you, a sinful human, and a holy God. And he's saying to this holy God, you need to forgive them of their sin. Why can Jesus mediate this contract between us and God? Because of the next thing John says. Verse 2, he, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. The word propitiation is a $15,000 seminary word that merely means that Jesus died for our sin, so therefore it's been atoned for, paid for, and by doing so, that appeases the anger of God. Now, God was not angry at us. He was angry at sin because sin came in and ruined his creation. And so he has this wrath against sin, but if he destroys sin, he destroys us in the process because we have sinned. And so Jesus goes and pays the penalty to appease the justice of God. That allows us to then be forgiven. So God no longer harbors his anger at us because sin has been paid for. We now can come into a relationship with God. This is the foundation of the gospel. This is essential doctrine. And John is just dropping it right there on them. I'm writing these things so you will not sin. Why? Because Jesus has already paid for it. But he's not done. He noticed, he says, it's not just for our sin that Jesus died. It's also for the sins of the whole world. That's how powerful the moment of the cross was. It wasn't just for John's readers. It wasn't just for the Jews. It was for the whole world. This echoes the doctrine that Jesus laid down in John's gospel, chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Jesus said, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Jesus is saying God loves the whole world. He loves all of humanity. That is why Jesus, right before he ascended to heaven, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, he says, go, make disciples of all nations. And he even gives instructions in Acts 1.8, where to go? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You've got to go to all people with this gospel message. Tell them about the propitiation of sin. Preach to them the gospel. John is sitting there establishing and affirming this doctrine that's so needed and necessary. But he's not just establishing doctrine. Really what he's doing is he's, he's establishing and affirming this doctrine. He's doing the third thing. He's reminding them. The epistles remind. The epistles 
remind. Notice uh, over in verse 7. 1 John chapter 2, verse 7. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. I don't know about you, but so often when I hear the word teaching, I, I, I think of teaching as trying to learn new concepts. You know, kids, you go to school and you have a teacher and the teacher's supposed to be teaching you new concepts. You know, I listen to a lot of podcasts. Often I'm trying to learn new things. But what's so interesting about the epistles is that they're not sitting there spending tons of time trying to teach new stuff as much as they're trying to remind them of old stuff. I mean, notice what John said there. He says, I'm not writing you a new command. This is an old command. You, you, you already know this, he says. Why is he trying to spend this time reminding them? Because he knows that humans are incredibly forgetful creatures. I, it really, it's, it's embarrassing how forgetful we are. And, and I'm not talking about, you know, walking into a room and forgetting why you walked in there. Or, you know, like where you put your keys or where your homework is. No, I, I'm talking about like forgetting core things. You know, like the woman who has the affair with a coworker. She forgot her vows in that moment. Or the student who lies to their teacher about where their homework is, they forgot in that moment the things their mom and dad taught them about honesty. Or, or the person who takes their own life, they, they forgot how much they were worth and how much they're loved. It's really sad how forgetful we are, how we can forget these core truths, and it leads us into bad things. That is why John is writing them, and he says, I don't have to tell you anything new. I just need to remind you. I need to remind you of this core doctrine, and it will help you and protect you. Notice particularly how he reminds them down in verses 12 through 14. Starting verse 12, he says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Notice. Twice he writes to children. Twice he writes to father. Twice he writes to young men. He's repeating himself. To the children, he says, your sins are forgiven. He's writing to Christians. They already know this. Yet he reminds them, your sins are forgiven. And part of how do they know their sins are forgiven? Because they know the father. To the, to the fathers, he says the same exact thing both times. Because you know him who's from the beginning. Who's from the beginning? Jesus. And, and then to the young men. He says to them twice, you've overcome the evil one. How, how so? Because you're strong, because the word of God abides in you. He is not telling them anything new. He's reminding them of what they should already know. Because what he's doing is that by reminding them of these things, he's really not just reminding them what they know. He's reminding them who they are. He's getting back to, the, to identity. Everything you do, you do of how you view yourself. And so if you view yourself as being really weak and pathetic and not very smart, then you're not likely going to speak up in class or at the meeting. If you view yourself as being God's gift to the entire world, you're going to walk around like an arrogant jerk. Everything you do in life is based out of your identity. 
And John knows if he can help his readers get their identity in the gospel, then they will know this doctrine that's been established and they will be protected. So this is what they do. They sit there and they give all these reminders of who you are in Jesus. Because once you know who you are in Christ, it will then affect the way you do and think. And that leads then to his fourth point. And this is the point of our entire His Story series. That the epistles, like the rest of the scripture, point to Jesus. The epistle writers point to Jesus. Back in the 80s and 90s, there was... uh, a movement within uh, evangelical Christianity that was a bit of a reaction to some of what had been happening. A a lot of the sermons of the day had really started to become very lofty to the point that those who didn't know Jesus and weren't familiar with the Bible didn't understand it. It felt so distant and they kind of pulled away. And because some of these pastors have a heart to help those who don't know Jesus to find him and follow him, they began to put their sermons into very practical ways. And so you would end up with sermons that would teach you like three steps to a happy marriage or six steps to, you know, better sex or, you know, five ways to handle your finances. I mean, they they just gave these very practical messages. And in some ways, I can't blame them because if you go and you sit there and read through the epistles, you'll find stuff on marriage, on parenting, on finances. I mean, all sorts of topics are discussed in the epistles. And, And so in some ways, it made sense. One of the byproducts of it is that people would then start going through and picking and choosing the different verses that they wanted to start to make the case that they wanted to make. And sometimes what ended up getting left out was Jesus. And you ended up with just a really nice moral message, but they didn't give you the motivation behind it. All you ended up with a message that helped you think that, oh, God just wants to make my life a little better. But God does not want to just make your life better. He wants to make it different. And we notice that by where the epistle writers point. And that's to Jesus. Go go back to verse 1 there in 1 John 2. I want you to notice what, what John does. He says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now notice, he did not say, I'm writing this so that you will not sin. So here's five steps that you can avoid sin. No, what's he do? I'm writing this so you may not sin. But if anyone does, we have an advocate. Who's this advocate? Jesus. Immediately, he points you to Christ. And and he doesn't stop if you keep going. He, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him, Jesus, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know Jesus, but does not keep Jesus' commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps Jesus' word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Christ. Whoever says he abides in Jesus ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. Do you see it? Over and over and over and over, he keeps pointing you back to Christ. And it isn't because it's not important to think about marriage or parenting or any of these other things. The reason he's pointing to Jesus is because the gospel is supposed to be your motivation for all of these things. When your identity is wrapped up inside of the gospel, it begins to affect then how you do your marriage. It affects the way you parent your children. It affects the way you interact with your peers at school. It affects the way you do your job. 
And so you don't use the epistles to try and find, oh, how do I live my life a little better? You go to the epistles to figure out, how do I follow Jesus? Because Jesus will guide you into how to live your life. That's what John is trying to do. To protect, to uh, explain, to establish doctrine, to remind, and then to point you to Jesus. But it's not just him. I want you to see it in one other place. If you know where the book of Colossians is, go ahead and open up to Colossians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter. Uh, It was to a church in a city known as Colossae, but Paul never visited Colossae. Most of the letters that he writes to churches were written to churches that he planted. But this one's different. He planted a church in Ephesus, and then some guys from there end up traveling around, and they went to this uh, small city named Colossae. They shared the gospel, some disciples were made, and a church is started. And Paul's so excited. He's just pumped that a church gets planted. And yet, he wasn't the one who planted it. And so he's got to write them a letter. First to celebrate. Like, guys, this is great. But he wants to make sure they really know the truth. And so as he writes his letter, he starts re-explaining the gospel. And right in the middle of chapter 3, it comes to this place where he wraps it up. In verse 11, he says that Christ is all and is in all. In other words, it's all about Jesus. He's pointing to Jesus. So because it's all about Jesus, he says this, starting in verse 12. Put on then, because of Jesus, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Notice, Paul is doing the exact same things as John. First, he's writing to protect them. Paul knows that if they give in to sin, if they give in to selfishness, it will ruin them. That's why he says to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Like, bear with one another. Be like Jesus. Don't put yourself first. Put others first. Serve them. Go under. That will protect you from sin. And it will keep you from ruin. He also is establishing doctrine. Is there why? He says, forgive one another. Why? Because the Lord forgave you. He goes back to the gospel. He's establishing and affirming the doctrine that they should already know. He's reminding them of these things. Down in verse 16, he says, To let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. In other words, he's saying, you guys already know what you need to know. You know these things. So teach one another. Admonish one another with all wisdom. And then, finally, he points to Jesus throughout the whole entire thing, but especially verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Everything. That means everything you do at work, everything you do at play, everything that you do in your marriage or in parenting, everything you do in your neighborhood, 
Everything you say, everything you watch, everything you eat, in everything, in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Let your life point to Christ. So, John and the rest of the epistle writers, they're seeking to help protect you. They're seeking to help establish doctrine, affirm it. They want to remind you then of this doctrine, of this gospel, of your identity. But ultimately, they're pointing to Christ. So what do we do? Think two things. First, think we need to get into the epistles. Now, like, just really get into them, study them, read them, because they're always trying to explain the gospel to us and help us see how the gospel applies to everyday life. So, so get into them. Notice back in, in 1 John chapter 2, he talked about walking like Jesus. In other words, he wants you to love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. And so get into the epistles so that it can begin to explain to you how to do this life and God accomplishes that in you. But also, I don't want you just getting into the epistles so that you just get a lot smarter and fill your head with knowledge. I think the second thing we need to do is to live out the gospel as established in the epistles. So, so you get into it. So I, I want you to think of it like a bike, all right? You end up pushing down on the pedal of getting into the, the epistles. So, so you're reading them, you're studying them, but then as that comes down, you're, you're applying it. You're, you're living it out. And then you start getting into it, and you, you, you feed it yourself. And then you're, you're applying, living it out. And in the morning, you're spending time in it. And then throughout the day, you're living it out. And the more you pedal, the faster you start going, and the more and more you become like Christ. That's what I think the epistle writers are wanting to do. They're writing these letters to protect you, to establish doctrine in your life, to mature you in Christ, to help you re be reminded of your identity in the gospel. They're pointing you to Jesus. Because as you get that into your life, you then can go and live it out and you make a difference in the world. It makes a difference in your marriage. It makes a difference in your parenting. It makes a difference at work. It makes a difference at school. It makes a difference wherever you go. So together, let's be the church that gets into the epistles so that we can live out the gospel. So Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would make us that church that we would be established upon this doctrine of the gospel, that this would be our foundation, and it would then change how we live life. And so, Father, I pray for anyone right now that has been living selfishly uh, because they're just eating whatever they want or watching whatever they want or saying whatever they want. They ha are not being caring and kind and, and selfless. I, I pray, Father, that you'd help them to walk like Jesus walked, to live like Jesus lived, to love like Jesus loved, and it would be motivated by the gospel. Lord, I pray for anyone here today that is struggling to forgive. They've been deeply hurt. And yet, Jesus, you forgave us despite the incredible hurts that we've done against a holy God. And then you've mediated between us. And so because this holy God has forgiven us, help us to forgive others. God, I, I pray that you would accomplish these things in us because they believe it is for our joy. Father, I pray for the protection of my church family. Pray for the protection of myself. God, do not let us be tempted and drawn into sin because it always lies. It always ruins. Instead, may we just be so encaptured with the glory and beauty of Jesus that your gospel is so precious to us that we totally lose our taste for sin. Would you just do this in us? Because we believe that this is where our joy is found, is in you. 
And so, Father, I pray that you just continue to remind us that we are forgiven for the sins we have made this week, the, the things we said, the things we did, whether it, 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 that hurt someone or, or something that was done in quiet. Father, I thank you that we have an advocate before the Father, and his name is Jesus. And I pray that we would just continue to fall on our knees before Jesus to say thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for going to the cross. Thank you for what you have done. I pray that this gospel would become our motivator and it would absolutely fundamentally change us. So Father, help us to be the church that really gets into these epistles because they're continually pointing us to Jesus. And as we look at Christ, we know that you will do this great work in us because I believe you want to do a tremendous work through us. So Father, would you go help us to go deep with you? It's in Christ's name we pray together. Amen.